The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, <coughs> let's get on to the questions. Uh, and uh, starting from the top, uh, uh, dear Ajahn, any advice or tips to reduce random thoughts and quiet the mind faster? Uh, I feel it takes so long by the time thought settle meditation is over. <laughs> Sometimes can't even be quiet within my allocated time. Uh, one that way that helps a bit is to feel I'm dying or I'm in samadhi, although not really, but uh, by thinking that it immediately reduces a lot of thoughts and become you become peaceful uh, uh, yes that is uh, one of the purposes of the death contemplation is to reduce the thinking mind and become peaceful uh, so if that works uh, uh, you can always come back to the death contemplation yeah and uh, the idea of course is that you can we can die at any time uh, and unless you are ready now you're very likely never really to be ready for this anyway so it's a very useful uh, <coughs> contemplation to kind of uh, for making you peaceful specifically in the face of death it doesn't make any sense to have any desires related to this world or any ill will and all of that uh, so it's quite nice uh, nice way of uh, letting go of everything here yeah. so that is uh, is useful here yeah. uh, you can also just uh, look at those thoughts and look at the content what it is about uh, and just remind yourself that a lot of the things that we think about are that there's nothing really necessarily of interest in that world. Uh, yeah, often we could we look at problems that we have to resolve or issues that we have to deal with at work or in a family life or whatever it is. Uh, and very often there is just another problem after another problem coming up again. You resolve one, there's more problems down the line. It's endless. Uh, so you realize there is no real solution in that realm. There is no final uh, way out of it. Uh, and the only real solution is actually to become quiet here and now. So just understanding the limits of that world, uh, that there isn't any point to it. Uh. So these are, uh, so. but if, you, if death contemplation works for you, please do that, because uh, uh, it can often be very, very, make, make a lot of peace in your mind. Uh. The other thing is to make the meditation more attractive, uh, yeah, so that it becomes more uh, interesting just to stay with the peace or with the breath or whatever. And to do that, you just have to look for the attractive side of meditation practice. Yeah, As Look for the beauty of the peace, look for any uh, piti sukha that may arise or whatever it is. Uh, and the more you see that, the more you see that letting go of the burdens of the world and meditation is something beautiful, uh, the mind will incline towards that. Uh, all of these things take time, so you have to be very patient. Yeah, Even being able to do the death contemplation properly can be quite... Uh, takes time bef often before it bites and so you often have to actually try these things out uh, and sometimes it may be very useful to have a guided meditation to help you yeah because that i don't know many people just if you have the right kind of voice the right kind of person someone you trust someone you feel inspired by and everybody has tends to have some people who inspire them uh, then listen to that voice and often that can kind of transport you into a peaceful state quite quickly because uh, of that feeling, that depth of uh, um, 
spiritual qualities or whatever that a person may have. Uh, yeah, so they can be very useful. I have often found that myself. Just listening to the right person can actually be very powerful and very useful. Yeah. So try some of those things, uh, and uh, over time you will be able to find things that work for you. Hopefully, yeah. Okay. Dear Arjan, Buddhism and Hinduism have lots of similarities like sam samsara, samadhi, etc. The unborn. Uh, but Hinduism says liberation is self-realization where the self is all-encompassing which includes everything within and without nature. Uh, self, non-self, emptiness, nothingness, uh, everything is encapsulated in the word self. Uh, uh, but mainly referring to uh, the nature of nature. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, okay. Since it's just a label word but represents non-self in Buddhism, is it the same in your opinion? Uh, if not, then how come there are many awakened yogis throughout time which, uh, um, which exist before Buddhism uh, and people are able to follow the path of liberation as well? To me, it feels the same like how all rivers lead to the ocean. <laughs> okay. Well, the first problem here is this idea of there are many awakened yogis throughout time. Well, do we? What does it mean, awakened? And and uh, how do we know that that they are really awakened? And to what extent are they awakened? And what does awakening mean in the different traditions? And this is very. You know, you really have to define your terms very carefully here to know what you're talking about. Uh, and uh, awakening in Buddhism means something else than awakening in Advaita Vedanta, for example, you know, non-duality uh, Hindu traditions. Uh, it means very different things. Uh, in, in, one sense, in one place, awakening is roughly equivalent to what we call samadhi in Buddhism. Uh, because samadhi is a very profound state and because it is so profound it is very natural to take samadhi as uh, awakening itself uh, yeah, when you reach kind of the something that feels like the meaning of life uh, where there is no more movement at all uh, when you just experience you know undiluted continuous bliss for hours on end uh, where the sense of y y that yourself has been abandoned. This is why they call it non-self in these things, because the experience is pretty much that there is no self there. Yeah, The experience is one where you uh, of unity with everything, of no uh, differentiation between things. Uh, and because of that, it feels very similar to what, uh, you know, how, how um, Nibbana might be described in Buddhism. Yeah, You can very easily interpret those experiences in that sense. Uh, but it doesn't mean it is the same thing here. Yeah. And this is kind of the... Remember the Buddha existed in a very similar kind of uh, climate in ancient India, uh, where the, you had these uh, teachings that are very similar in many ways to modern uh, teachings about you know samadhi being the goal of the path and these kind of things. And the Buddha practiced in that way as well before his own awakening. But instead of taking these things as the goal, which is natural if you believe in a god or something already, everything becomes unified, everything comes together. He, he asked, well, is this really the end? And from his point of view, what he discovered is that no, because it just leads to more rebirth in the future. Uh, you don't stay there. You don't stay in that state forever. It only lasts so long. Then you come out of it and you carry on again. Uh, this is kind of part of the Buddha's discovery of you know, rebirth and kamma. So he asked, is there something beyond this? Uh, is there a real end to this thing we call samsara, a real end to rebirth? Uh, 
this doesn't actually end rebirth from a Buddhist point of view. This is where Buddhism is different. Uh, yeah, so from the Buddhist point of view, the awakening experience is actually beyond that. Even that experience uh, you can take as a self afterwards. When you come out of it, uh, you will say that that is a self. This is why uh, in uh, the Hindu system they, they call it the Atman and the Brahman uh, kind of coming together. This is a kind of the experience. Uh, they call it the Atman and the Brahman, the real self, if you like, or the universal self. Uh, similar to the kind of things that you may may experience in some other mystical traditions uh, also. But the Buddha says you have to go beyond that. Uh, yeah, You have to go to the complete emptiness, uh, which is beyond even that. Uh, and uh, so this is where the Buddha specifically says that Buddhism is different because uh, it takes the non-self idea to its very limit, to its very conclusion. Uh, and that's the distinction. Uh. And uh, this is, uh, so this is uh, really where where that where the, the difference comes in uh, otherwise if you otherwise as you say uh, they they would be pretty much the same all of these things uh. yeah it's important to make these kind of distinctions uh, because uh, if we don't make these kind of distinctions then indeed it looks like all rivers lead to the ocean but the things aren't always the same there's lots of things in common uh, but not exactly the same uh. okay Dear Ajahn, from your understanding, what is the difference between uh, the Buddhism you teach and the Dzogchen teachings, uh, views, uh, and meditation techniques? Uh, I've been keen to explore Dzogchen, but would like to understand the core difference from your experience. Thank you. I don't really know much about Dzogchen, to be honest with you. I, it, it's uh, kind of a mindfulness practice or something like that. Uh, and uh, But I don't really know. This is a, a Tibetan uh, uh, a teaching uh, and uh, it, uh, probably there's lots in common uh, yeah i can't really say there's a mindfulness teaching that ob ultimately probably leads to some kind of stillness of the mind maybe samadhi uh, but uh, i cannot really tell you enough to really to really know what it is uh, to, to really give you any kind of informed understanding of that uh, unfortunately uh, i have kind of been happy because the reason is simply because i tend to go back to the word of the buddha and uh, I look at those teachings, that's what I find interesting, uh, and I haven't really explored or, or read much about the other teachings. Uh, so I can't really say. Okay. You know anything about Zongshan teachings? No? Uh, okay, yeah, no. We are an ignorant, ignorant Sangha members, we don't know about these things. Uh. <laughs> Ajahn, please define Samadhi stillness. One, is it the first jhana and beyond? Uh, uh, on the stages before when you lose awareness of the of the body thank you for the teachings well samadhi and stillness is is a gradual thing yeah like so many things uh, so it is really a matter of it, you know you can say that there is some degree of stillness obviously stillness is something which goes deeper and deeper and deeper uh, so you could maybe argue that there is a degree of samadhi before you get to the jhana stage yeah when the mind is very one-pointed on the object uh, Samadhi is defined in the suttas as non-distractedness. Uh, yeah? So the mind is not being distracted by the five senses or by thoughts or by whatever, uh, but it's kind of staying with one object. Uh, that's how samadhi is defined. There's many dif definitions, that's one of them. Uh, uh, avikitta citta, non-distracted mind. Ekankata uh, uh, citta, the, the one-pointed mind. Uh, uh, so that is one definition. But uh, the, the samma samadhi, the samadhi in the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, uh, which may be what we're talking about uh, 
now because we're looking at the fourth noble truth then it is defined as the jhana states yeah the four jhanas specifically and uh, so that's what it is there so it is a matter of degree but uh, ideally you know as part of this practice eventually you want to get to the point where the mind is as unified as possible and as peaceful as possible possible including the jhanas if you you know if you keep on practicing long enough uh, it's a gradual thing and it also includes the jhanas down the track yeah? and that's kind of where where this path is heading eventually here yeah. ajahn thank you for your teachings this week yeah? what internal internal speak speech do, uh, do you use to address not being uh, over compassionate towards others uh, what do you say when uh, resentment arises uh, I know this is in the past, uh, but if you could recall, uh, I would appreciate your sharing uh, to help me here. Um, condolences on the loss of your sister. May she progress along the path. Uh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, I, you know, you can't really be over-compassionate, I suppose. I suppose that you are maybe trying stretching your limited resources too much to the point where you actually maybe lose the compassion uh, and you uh, resentment arises uh, so you have to you have to know your limits yeah you have to know how much you can do and if you feel that it goes too far you're stretching yourself too thin uh, over too much uh, then just pull back a little bit uh, yeah and do some more meditation recharge your batteries uh, do what you have to do to re-establish again those good qualities inside of you uh, Otherwise, uh, it's not going to work out in the long run. Uh, you have to have those good qualities to be able to share them with others. Uh, otherwise, no, there's nothing there to share. Uh, so you have to kind of establish yourself first of all. Uh, yeah. So just know your limits. Pull back. Okay, now I need time to look after myself and kind of build up these good qualities again. Uh, yeah, so uh, resentment arising means that you are probably like kind of maybe allowing yourself to be manipulated a little bit by others or something like that. Uh, and then you f when you allow that to happen, then of course you it's very easy to feel resentful because of that. Uh, so don't allow others to manipulate you. You should decide what the right time is to be compassionate and caring uh, and try not to allow the people to kind of boss you around too much because uh, it just leads to, as you say, problems. Uh. So, uh, yeah, uh, is that hopefully that's what you are asking? Uh, okay. Uh, dear Ajahn, what type of Buddhist teachings is considered Theravada? Is what you are teaching referred to as Theravada? <laughs> what is the difference between uh, Orthodox ther Theravada? Thank you. Well, Theravada is really a school of Buddhism. Yes, there are many schools of Buddhism, and Buddhism kind of divided up into uh, eighteen schools is the kind of the number that is often quoted uh, from in in ancient India. It's probably not exactly eighteen, but that's kind of a, an accepted number. It probably was more than that. Uh, uh, and Theravada became one of those schools, and a school that got established in Sri Lanka is the Theravadan school. Uh, and a Theravadan school has certain scriptures that belong to that school. A Theravadan Abhidhamma, Visuddhimagga, commentaries, sub-commentaries, uh, handbooks of Abhidhamma, and all, all kind of stuff that belongs to that school and that don't exist in other schools of Buddhism. Yeah? That's what makes it Theravada Buddhism. 
So uh, the question then is, well, what do you take as what 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 do you take as your kind of in, your inspiration on the Buddhist path? And uh, I what I am personally interested in is the word of the Buddha. Yeah, and uh, I'm not so interested in things that were written by unknown authors. Uh, you know long time after the Buddha because the Buddha I ultimately take as the teacher of Buddhism of all schools of Buddhism and uh, that kind of opens up uh, your uh, idea of what the Dhamma is it means that you look at the suttas which are uh, you know most likely to be the word of the Buddha and then you can even use other suttas and other schools that were also passed down uh, yeah because all of these come from the Buddha originally uh, and then it allows you to form a very clear fairly clear picture of what the earliest form of Buddhism is by looking at all the suttas uh, across different schools uh. but basically the main thing you need to do if you want to know what early Buddhism is or the Buddha's teachings uh, just the four main Nikayas, yeah, Diga Nikaya, Majjhima Nikaya, uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, and Anguttara Nikaya. Long discourses, middle-length discourses, connected discourses, and num numerical discourses. Uh, that's really what is uh, what I would consider uh, the core of Buddhism, uh, and everything else is optional. Uh, yeah, and so I would often say, leave all the other things. You can leave them pretty much aside. Uh, don't have to worry too much about that. Uh, um, and uh, come back to those core teachings. Uh, of course, it's, in reality, it's impossible to leave all these other things completely aside because we need a bit of commentary, we need a bit to, to understand these things. Yeah, uh, And uh, so for that reason, it, um, it's impossible just to read the suttas and not to listen to anything else. Uh, uh, in a sense, you're listening to me now, yeah. So I'm kind of I would be hypocritical if I said just read the suttas. Uh, so maybe what I should do is just come here to Melbourne and just read the suttas, uh, full stop. Do nothing more, yeah? That's what I'm saying. Just read the suttas. Uh, so read it out, full stop, and then remain quiet afterwards. Uh. <laughs> so I, I'm just showing that to point point out that actually it is impossible just to read the suttas. Some some degree of commentary is necessary. So for that reason, um, you know, you uh, yeah, you have to come back to some commentary as well. So this is what I mean by orthodox Theravada. I mean all of those scriptures that are kind of regarded as Theravada together uh, and instead going back to the earliest teachings. Uh, yeah, so I hope that makes sense. Uh, dear Ajahn, yesterday you said we all need support from the Buddha in order to break through to the final state of delusion. Uh, and it's hard to do without guidance. Since the Buddha was alone at his final awakening stages, what supported him for his breakthrough? Can we actually do it alone if no support? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. Um, uh, this is an interesting question, and it's uh, hard to really be exactly sure what happened to the Buddha but it looks like it is possible under certain circumstances uh, to make the breakthrough on your own. Uh, what are the qualities that are required to do that? And I I think a lot of those qualities are obviously the Buddha was already when he was born he was he had very strong spiritual qualities already yeah remember according to the autobiographical account of the Buddha he, uh, he attained the jhana state as a child yeah, so the only way you're going to do that is if you have built, probably meditated in past lives. Uh, you've probably done all kinds of things in the past uh, to enable you to have those qualities there in the in his last life. Uh, 
And I don't think that has anything to do with the bodhisattva path. I don't really, but that's a later development as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it just so happens in the world. If you look around, some people are more developed than others. Yeah, There are a few people who are very highly developed for whatever reason, because they have maybe some wisdom or whatever. So the Buddha was one of these people that was very highly developed when he was born into this world. And then on top of that, there were all these additional uh, supporting factors. Uh, yeah, in ancient India was a very spiritual society uh, where uh, people were able to uh, go forth and then be supported by society around them. Uh, it was a society where samadhi was already being practiced so that you, you could practice a very long way on the path to very profound samadhi experiences uh, which meant that the, the distance to full awakening was quite short uh, because you already had fulfilled pretty much the Noble Eightfold Path. The only thing on the Noble Eightfold Path the Buddha had not fulfilled was which factor? The first one, yeah, Samaditi, exactly. All the other factors were really fulfilled, yeah? Samaditi was missing. So once that uh, the Buddha started to think in the right way, recall his past life, then Samaditi also came into being gradually. And then when that Samaditi informed the Sama Samadhi, Sama Samadhi and Samaditi coming together, then the awakening became possible. Yeah? And I think a large part of that is the recollection of past lives. Yeah? When you see that reality, it is kind of shocking. And then uh, you understand the idea of the dukkha of the world, and then you can let it go as a consequence. Uh. So this is how that works, really. Yeah. So, so there's a mixture of uh, qualities that a person is built, ha comes with into this world, and then the supporting factors in that society. Whether it's possible to uh, become a Buddha in contemporary Australia, I, I don't know. <laughs> would be quite difficult, yeah, because we don't have maybe the same uh, the same kind of supporting factors. Of course, we have Buddhism, so you can still practice. So that's kind of the good thing. You don't have to become a Buddha. But if there were if there were no Buddhism, then the question is: Would it be possible for Buddhism to arise in Australia today? I have my doubts. So. <laughs> I mean, most of the world is like that, and not just Australia. But it's very in this present day. I think it's probably much more difficult. Uh, uh, maybe India will still be possible because they still have this uh, tradition of samanas in India. Hi Ajahn, from your understanding, which school of Buddhism and meditation techniques is the truest to the Buddha's teachings? Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Madhyamika, Yogacara, etc. I learned some from each, but confused to which is the most true to the Buddha's teachings. Thanks. Can you give us a brief history? <laughs> so remember that all of these schools, they have... Uh, things in common yeah and all of these schools have things that are rooted in the word of the buddha and all of them also have additional things yeah this is kind of the interesting point and so sometimes you know we kind of think theravada is more original than mahayana and th there is some truth to that uh, but we shouldn't take it too far because in uh, the Mahaya, if you go to the chinese the buddhist canon translated into chinese they also have what is called the agamas the agamas are the uh, equivalent in sa in uh, other schools uh, to the nikayas uh, in pali uh. Yeah, so in, in a sentence, the, these scriptures, yeah, the, the core scriptures, they exist in all of these schools. Uh, the only school which has lost a lot of them is the Tibetan tradition. So Vajrayana, there is less of the early scriptures. Uh, they have some, but not, not all of them. Uh, so there, there is more, even more emphasis on later suttas. Uh. But uh, 
you know, it, so it really depends on how people practice. It depends on what they take as their guidance when they practice. And one of the things I remember reading, for example, the Dalai Lama many, many years ago, had some of his teachings, uh, and actually the way he teaches is often very kind of down-to-earth. Uh, yeah, teachings that are very similar to what you hear in Theravada circles, uh, mindfulness of breathing, just being kind and compassionate and these kind of things. Uh, so a lot of it is very universal, uh, yeah, non-self and whatever. Uh, so a lot of it is uh, very, very much the same. Uh, and uh, sometimes you ask the Dalai Lama, well, who is ready for the more advanced teachings? And he will say something like nobody or something like that. Yeah? So in other words, it's almost as if he's dismissing some of those more advanced teachings anyway. So it depends yeah, on who you are and, and how you practice these things. Uh, there's a very famous uh, uh, monk, Chinese monk. Uh, he, is, uh, he moved from mainland China to Taiwan after the... Uh, after the uh, 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 you know with the, when Taiwan became established, uh, uh, and he um, uh, uh, Master Yin Shen uh, or something like that, I can't pronounce these things properly, but something like that, uh, and he was um, uh, very famous as a scholar, and he was kind of the one of the main people behind the inspiration behind all the large schools of Buddhism in Taiwan. Yeah, the uh, Four Guan Shan. Uh, uh, the uh, Dharma Drum and uh, the uh, Su Chi Foundation, uh, all of these were in large part inspired by him. So he was a very influential character in Taiwanese Buddhism. And he, uh, if you asked him, uh, he would say, well, if there is the word of the Buddha is found in the four Agamas. Yeah? He was a Mahayana Buddhist, but he said, this is where the word of the Buddha is found. So it's very interesting. Yeah? There's a w the gra greatest Mahayana scholar in modern times. Uh, that's what he would say here. Yeah? So you can see this is much more diverse than sometimes what we try to make it. Uh, it is not either Theravada or Mahayana. It depends how you practice Theravada, how you practice Mahayana, which kind of makes you close to the early teachings. Uh, so no school is 100% right. No school is 100% wrong. Uh, uh, but they're all kind of a bit inter... Uh, th th there's a bit of good and a bit of bad in all of them. Having said that, Theravada has some big advantages uh, because we have the Pali Canon, uh, which first of all is an Indian language, yeah, so it's quite close to the original language, which is always a good thing. Uh, the more you translate things, the less you keep things intact. Uh, it's a full set of suttas, uh, yeah, the whole set of the uh, four Nikayas is there. That's an very other very important uh, factor in that. Uh, and generally speaking, if you look at the Theravada suttas, they seem to have been kept with a very in a very conservative fashion. Uh, generally speaking, they seem to be more original than uh, suttas from other schools. Yeah, gen gen not always, but generally, it doesn't mean that we cannot learn anything from other languages and schools. We can, but generally speaking, the Theravada is actually kept very well. So these are some of the reasons why the Theravada suttas are, or, or Theravada has some advantages, at least the scriptures that we have, have certain advantages. Uh, but I think it's nice to get away from this kind of one-upmanship, who is better, who is worse, and, and try to kind of see beyond that and see that any good Buddhist who is practicing in a good way, who has a kind heart, who is generous, and who is, uh, you know, has these qualities, actually that's a wonderful thing. Yeah? And then we don't need to say, you know, because we all think we are better. I mean, it's kind of natural that to think you're better. Otherwise, if you didn't think you're better, you choose something else. Yeah. So it's kind of natural to think that you're on the right track. Yeah? But also you, useful to kind of reduce that a little bit so we can have more harmony. Because sometimes you find 
Mahayana Buddhists who are better practicing than certain Theravada Buddhists. Yeah, it's not what you label yourself; it's how you live that really matters at the end. Uh, and there are people, you know, all kinds of people around the world. There are Christians and Muslims and atheists and everything. Sometimes there are incredibly good people. And sometimes even Buddhists can learn from some people in these other religions. Uh, of course, they can learn from us, we can learn from them. And when you look at the world li in like that, you take away some of the barriers between us, uh, which can often be very useful. Yeah. Okay, so that's uh, yeah. a little bit about that. Uh, and let's go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn, I would like to thank you uh, for your excellent uh, teachings of the suttas again. I really appreciate the careful, uh, careful you put into the suttas, uh, your uh, present and the thorough and interesting way you present them. Uh, it is a very generous gift to us all and one for which we have great gratitude. Uh, I look forward uh, to learning your teachings yet again next year. <laughs> I am never bored. Okay, good. That's very nice. So uh, next year we'll see see what happens next year. Of course, coronavirus might create problems. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> so we'll see. But. Uh, yeah, I guess there is a good chance. Yeah, once you have come a few times, there's always a good chance you will come back. So I actually, I'm already, I think I'm already down for coming next year. So I, I've already committed myself. So I will, um, that should be happening. Anyway, dear Rajan Brahmali, thank you very much for your wise sermons. <laughs> sermons is a kind of very Christian word. When I hear the word sermon, I don't really think of what I don't feel I'm giving sermons. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway. So uh, that's, I, I know what you mean. So that's uh, very kind of you. So number one, talks, yeah. Number one, time permitting, will you be able to do a guided meditation session on death meditation, please, tomorrow? I already did get that before. Maybe you weren't present when it happened, uh, yeah. I already tried that again. So I'm not sure if there will be time tomorrow because tomorrow we are going to uh, end a little bit earlier than today. So uh, probably unlikely, but it is recorded probably. Is, are they recorded? This? Yeah, they are recorded. So you can probably listen to it online later on when it gets uploaded to the BSV website or whatever. Number two, how do we go about booking two or three weeks at Damasara or Bodhinyana Monastery? Our humble gratitude to both you, Venerable Ajahn Brahmali, and Venerable Ajahn Nisarano. How you go about? You go online. And you go to the BSW website, and on there you go to the Bodhinyana or the Damasara sub-menu, wherever that is. Uh, and uh, if you want to stay at Bodhinyana, there is a, a form right there on the website. You fill it in online, and then you kind of fire it off, uh, and then you get told when the next spot is available, yeah? Which is uncertain, <laughs> just to let you know. It is, un it is uncertain. Damasara, I'm not sure how you do it and anyone know how you do it at Damasara is a similar kind of thing is that yeah same thing online forum okay so Burr, uh, thank you Burr, for coming and now you now we <laughs> good that you are here so that's how you do it yeah similar kind of thing so fill in the form online and then you will hear from the guest monk or the guest nun and they will let you know what happens next there's also quite a bit of information on the website about what you can expect, what you should do, what you should bring, and etc. etc. So if you want to read up on that, it can be handy so that uh, it's uh, you know what you're going to. If if it looks scary, well then actually it's not very scary. Yeah, that's kind of just we're kind of trying to put people off a little bit so that they are really ready when they come. But actually, 
it's not very scary to live at the monastery here. Okay, dear Ajahn, unlike my Kalyanamitai, my preference is to be reborn female, a bhikkhuni, and contribute to the monastic gender equality. Okay, yay! <laughs> no doubt with the support of male monastics and lay people, continuing Ajahn Brahm's courageous initiative. Ajahn, is there any age limit on male ordination at Bodhinana Monastery? Following is a statement not requiring a comment from you uh, okay <laughs> so uh, uh, what is this statement okay um okay uh, okay uh, okay so uh, nbm has reduced the entry age for females from 55 to 50 and now 45 my concern is that a woman would need to have a child by her age 27 if they choose to uh, care for the child until 18 years old. Sadly, this may preclude many women from the option of ordination. Uh, as a gratitude for your profound knowledge and inspiring approach to the suttas. Uh, please return. <laughs> okay. With much metta to you and Ajahn Nisarano. Okay. Um, Yes, that is true. I, I think ideally ideally, there should be no age limit in monasteries. At Bodhinyana we don't actually have an age limit, uh, but we try also to have a balance. We try not to have, you know, we, we it's nice to give young people a chance. And one of the main reasons why it's nice to give young people a chance is that they, they have a longer prospects yeah, in the future uh, yeah and then when you train them and you give them a chance they may become teachers in the future and they will kind of you know be more valuable for the buddhist community perhaps in the long run it's nice to have at least some young people in the monastery not everyone over 70 that uh, kind of uh, makes things more difficult sometimes we have some of the monks over 70 and they are great monks yeah some of them are untrainable but they're very sweet anyway yeah. <laughs> 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 and <laughs> but so it's, it's nice to have that. I like to have a monastery that is diverse. I really like, I think diversity creates a lot of goodness in a place. So some old monks, some young monks, some middle-aged monks, yeah? And that actually creates a very nice community. Monks from all kinds of backgrounds, yeah? Monks from all kinds of different countries and different cultures. Uh, I think that's really wonderful to have a monastery like that. Uh, so diversity in the Buddhist community, just like you see here, yeah? A very diverse community. BSWA is very similar, also very diverse, and I'd like to see that reflected in the monastic community. That diversity, I think, is great. Uh, it makes us more tolerant and makes us better people when we have a lot of diversity, I feel. Uh, and in the Buddhist community, we all have the same goal, we have the same teacher, the Buddha. Uh, it's really nice to be able to work together like that. Uh, so we don't have an age limit, but that doesn't mean that age doesn't matter. Sometimes we do take that into account. We look at how many people we have already from a certain age group, uh, and then we look a little bit at that. Uh. So, um, yeah, so I, I guess one of the reasons, again, why NBM has done that is because sometimes it is nice, you, you train young people, they will be around for a long time. Yeah, you kind of take these things into account. Uh, it sort of makes sense. Uh, ideally, it shouldn't be like that. Uh, but when you have a limited number of spaces, uh, yeah, sometimes you have to have some criteria to use to decide who to accept. Uh, and uh, sometimes this becomes one of the criterias, criterions that you use, uh, unfortunately. Okay. 
Okay, thank you both, Ajans, from the bottom of our hearts for sharing your experience of the Buddha's profound teachings. Love from all of us. Okay, that is a very nice question. I like these kind of questions. <laughs> very, uh, very straight and fine. That's very good. Uh, okay, any more Buddhist jokes? I, I like the I've told you a thousand times. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I've told you a million times. Don't exaggerate. Uh, that's, a <laughs> that's a nice little one. Okay, that's it. End of questions. So uh, tomorrow is another day. So we'll come back tomorrow uh, and uh, finish off the last few suttas. Uh, so have another uh, good evening. Uh, and we'll see you back again tomorrow morning. Uh, this is paid respect to Buddha Dhamma Sangha at the end. Uh.